Are there nerds here tonight? Nerds! You are a part of the lucky 10,000. With your hosts, Evan. There isn't uh, Adam Baldwin one of the other Baldwin brothers? And Carissa. Hey, I know that we left a bunch of things hanging because Fox is a bag of dicks. Being a nerd, it's not about what you love. It's about how you love it. Hey guys, it's Evan. Hey everybody, it's Carissa. And we are the Lucky 10,000, the podcast that gets you luckier than an American learning the word calipigeon from his British friend. We will explain why that's lucky in just a few minutes. But first, we would like to thank, obviously, Stitcher and Podbean for having us and the Tangent Bound Network for adding us to their awesome list of shows. Obviously, we have to thank, well, not thank, but we have to let you know that we are on the Bearded Pods Network featuring not only us, but Teddy and the Baseman and the Bearded Ones comedy podcast featuring also myself. And one of the reasons I started with the lucky phrase the way I did today is, speaking of Teddy and the Baseman, we have a very exciting show for you, yet another network crossover with good friend, Baseman himself, Trevor Furlong. Good <laughs> afternoon or evening or whenever you're listening to this. <laughs> Hi, Trev. Hello, Carissa. How are you? I'm chuffed, actually. I can steal it. Well, quite right, too. I wish you to use every English phrase you can think of because this will come up later in this podcast. The, the, the wonderful, um, forgive me for saying this, the wonderful bastard that is English. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'm an unabashed Anglophile, so I noticed that I don't get enough chances to use words like chuffed because most Americans don't know what it means. So yeah. I'm quite thrilled that I get And to. it also allows us to say cunt way more casually. <laughs> 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 I say so. What kind of language is that? English. Oh, fuck off, you can. <laughs> <laughs> but we have Trevor on because he is an honest to God, born in the flesh Brit, who's now been in the States for a while. And since Carissa and I both have an affinity for our English brethren, we thought it would be interesting to bring a Brit on the show. Also cross-pollinating with podcast listeners. If you like what you hear of Trevor today, please check out Teddy and the Baseman. But we thought it'd be interesting to hear the adventures of of a Brit coming over to the States and what life was like, what that culture shock was like, and just talk about that because we're, we're both obsessed with it. So why not hear it straight from the horse's mouth? Well, uh, one of the things that has to be understood is that we grew up in England with a huge amount of American TV. So the American way of life, the American accent, the American humor was no surprise. It's not like me going to Lithuania. You know, right. Are you had... saying Lithuanian television <laughs> isn't huge in England? Oh, well, well, you know, there's I'm sure there's a section of the community that it's absolutely vital for, but not not where I was, certainly. Not in and where South was London. that for our listening audience? Well, in when I first I grew up in a very rural part of England called Bedfordshire, which is was at the time in the 60s a sort of a farming community, as it were. Well, not farming, but rural anyway. And then when I was very young, before I started school, we moved to South London. Well, it's actually Middlesex, but South London's easy for people to understand. <laughs> oh, I understand Middlesex very clearly. If any of your listeners are big rugby fans, there is a place called Twickenham where they play rugby. I lived just up the road from there. I lived in a very sort of small community. I lived about four roads away from Phil Collins. I lived in the same town that The Who and The Stones came from. Wow. 
um, lots of sort of famous actors and things live around Surrey because, which is where I lived, because it's about 40 minutes to London and about 40 minutes to the coast. So they were able to go and do all their acting um, things, but still come out and live in the in the sticks, as it were. Seeing famous people in England is a is, a, is an everyday occurrence. They're not like they are in in the states, where they're on a pedestal and you know, don't see them, and they're behind you know walled gates. None of that. They just wander the streets. And being very British, we don't we don't uh, trouble them at all. We we just sort of you might possibly go and ask for an autograph, but we're we're very British about that, so we don't uh, approach them. That was my upbringing. And then around 1999, I was going through the throes of a divorce, spending a lot of time around at my brother's house in a band and needed the cords to rock lobster by the B-52s. <laughs> so went online. I was an internet virgin. So I went online and, and went into a music chat room and said, does anyone have the cords to rock lobster by the B-52s? And some guy in Philadelphia said, yep, yeah, my, my roommate's got them. Give me your email address. At which point I looked at my brother and said, what, what's, what's one of those? I was a late developer. He sent me those. I went back into the music chat room, bumped into somebody, uh, a female, who we chatted and chatted. Long story short, she lived in South Carolina. And in 1999, I came here. We met up. And within two weeks of meeting, she threw everything she knew, her job, her house, everything up in the air, and moved to London for 10 years. Wow. And then in 2008... I came upon a windfall of money and we decided if we were going to move back and be near Teddy's family that uh, we should come back to South Carolina while we had the money. And we did. That's awesome. Yep. Bought a house and a car and a business and we have only the house left. (laughs) (laughs) So you say that you knew a lot of American culture through TV, but American culture as a whole is very different than Southern culture. Was that weird coming to South Carolina first? Not really, because I felt, because the Surrey where I lived out in the home counties, essentially the home counties surround central London, and they're kind of the bedroom community for people who work in London but really cannot afford to live there. Give your listeners an idea, when I came here in 2008, a one-bedroom apartment in central London would cost you, at that point in 2008, would have cost you the equivalent of $500,000. Wow. So now now you can see why we came here. Um, Uh, Yeah. So I think what it is, is the home counties have a very kind of, it's a bit more kind of openness and honesty and friendliness. Central London, um, you know, you walk around with your head down and nobody makes eye contact on the tube and (laughs) it's very impersonal. So when I came here, don't get me wrong, it was a culture shock to have people ask me how I was when I went into a store because I I wasn't used to that. We, you see, when we got the, when we got things like KFC and Mickey D's and they came over and Burger King, the, the young disinterested youth of England were told, you have to say, have a nice day. And I say young and disinterested youth because that's how they said it. Yeah, have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny Some... that you and Carissa certainly share that in common yes. because she moved to South Carolina from Seattle. And I love to tell this story because I born and raised in the South. And I remember not that long, Carissa, before you moved, I think, back down to Texas, we were walking along the street in downtown Greenville. And this guy was coming up beside us and we made eye contact and I nodded and he nodded and we got past him. And you did this like comedy double take and then looked at me and was like, do you know that guy? I was like, no, I, I don't know him at all. You're like, I fucking hate the South. <laughs> that was exactly your word. Well, I mean, because 
Seattle isn't that different from your description of kind of the disinterested, detached public of London. And I think most major cities are like that. There's just too much going on and we're too busy. We don't just don't have time for you. So just do your business and get out. But the South isn't like that. It's so much slower. Mm. So I'd go into a store and I'm used to just ring my shit up. Let me pay you and I'll leave. And the cashiers are trying to have a conversation with me. And I'm like, "Uh, do I know you? (laughs) And for the longest time, it struck me as really rude, even though I know that they were trying to be in their own way very polite. But to me, I was like, you don't know me. Don't talk to me. That's not how we get along in polite society what's wrong with you? <laughs> well i i found that when i came here i mean i'm was used to kind of i worked for many years it's another part of the, the story but i worked for many years in scotland yard um, right in central london and everything moved at, at, at a fast pace and when i came to the south for the very first time in 99 it felt to me like a, a white jamaica it was look you, things will happen they don't have to happen right now We can take our time over this. Look, it will get done. Let's just let's let's not hurry it. And I kind of like that. There's a tiny, tiny island off the coast of England called the Isle of Wight. And they have that wonderful, they've retained that wonderful Victorian thing of everyone's polite and everyone's nice and things kind of move a bit slowly. It's a bit more genteel. And I remember going into a tea room in the Isle of Wight. We walked in and it was a baker's on one side, a, a boulangerie, shall we say, and a restaurant on the other. And we were the only customers. And the lady said, she asked us what we want and we ordered some cream tea and some coffee or something. And she said, I've got to take a gentleman across the road, his coffee, because he's bedbound. Will you look after the shop for me? And we kind of looked at each other and said, <laughs> you've never seen us before. How do you? So jokingly, I said, well, if someone comes in and wants to buy the shop, how much should we charge for it? She said, well, get me a good price. And she left us there. <laughs> so when she came back, I said to her, well, look, I work at Scotland Yard and you know, I deal with crime all the time. Did you not have a moment's hesitation letting us look after your store? And she said, no, no, why would I have? And I said, well, crime. Do you not have any crime here? She said, well, yeah, I think someone had their coat stolen the other week. <gasps> <laughs> and that was that was her idea of crime. So, <laughs> so now you know. Coming to the south, we had a restaurant in, in, in downtown Anderson, and one of our customers sat outside at one of our tables and left a, a CD Walkman, if there is such a thing, it's still in existence. And he left it on a table, and it stayed there for three days. Nobody touched it. Nobody stole it. Now in London, you put that down within twenty minutes, that would be gone. Yeah, right. You would never see that again. My kids come over here. I call them kids; are in their twenties. My kids come over here, and they love it here because it's big open spaces it's nice people it's friendly service and when someone says have a nice day they actually mean it rather than it's just a patter they've been given that's interesting that's interesting but obviously what you knew of america was from tv and stuff there had to be some things that took you by surprise can you can you think of anything that was just a real big like whoa this is so how we do it well i know i know uh, carissa's a great fan of uh, linguistics and obviously the the language was different in as in as much as referring to things you know your um, biscuit is our scone your cookies are our biscuits so (laughs) when i first came here my wife said i'm gonna get some chicken and biscuits my instant reaction is a piece of fried chicken in between a couple of cookies. <laughs> so I said, chicken and biscuits? That foul. How could you? I'm pretty sure KFC is actually working on that as we. <laughs> yeah, the, the next version of the double down or whatever it was called. Right. Oh, God. So, so the things like that. And obviously, when I came here, Teddy, as she likes to be called, said to me, I'm going to teach you how to shag. <laughs> 
as you can imagine, with two children, yeah. I said, I kind of got that bit down. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's, it's silly things, things that I, I have found, however, that it's much harder for uh, an English person to do a southern accent than it would be to just do a generic New York or whatever. Really? Oh, how horrendously hard. Because if we've got a southern character on, on, the, on the television or the radio, they were always trying to do that Penelope Pit stop. Well, bless my soul. Oh, you yeah. Know, and it was all that cartoon southern. If you, if you want to hear how bad English people do southern accents, Michael Caine in Secondhand Lions. Yes, oh, yeah. it was so oh, terrible. Oh. Why did his, his teacher not say to him, Michael, this isn't good enough. We can't do this. That's they might well. have, but he was Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My name is Michael Caine. My name is Michael Caine. You can't talk this... to me. I did Jaws 4. We've had this discussion before, you and I, Evan, that Michael Caine used to be that, like, my name is Michael Caine. <laughs> right. And then over the years, as soon as he became Alfred, his voice went down there. Yeah. Into that. You know, his voice disappeared down to sort of the growl. I don't know. Maybe he's... he's it's, uh... well, it's the same thing that happened to Pacino. If you look back at Dog Day Afternoon, yes. you know, he's like, I was talking like this all the time. It's like, hey, yeah, buddy, what are you doing? And now it's, you know, a Pacino. A hoo Yeah. Interestingly, slightly back half a topic, mm. the more, I hesitate to say erudite, but the stereotypical kind of Scarlett O'Hara sort of Southern accent, the very genteel mm. Charlestonian slash Virginian mm. accent is actually supposed to be closer to the dialect of southern british english that was spoken mm, mm. than current londoner accents are now right right absolutely i was talking earlier about english being the sort of the uh, melting pot the bastardized uh, borrowing from every single culture yes. and in one of your previous episodes that not the last one but the one before you were talking about english and, and the shakespeare's uh, influence on english and i grew up in you know, a fairly decently well-educated family but our everyday speech was absolutely littered with languages you know snippets from everything from from indian to jewish to you know the, the cockney rhyming slang so i still use them but i have to be careful who i use them around because they just look at me blankly and say well, what the hell are you talking about since we love language so much on the show why don't you give us an example like how would you talk to your family i can't imagine that anybody in greenville south carolina would know what the hell you were talking about if you were referring to your apples and pears <laughs> thank you absolutely well this is the thing when i first met teddy i said uh, i i i've got to go and sort my barnet out now barnet is a is cockney rhyming slang barnet fair which was a well known like a puck fair type thing you know a, a village fair was the cockney rhyming slang for hair so that's just just oh. accepted the barnet fair hair so when i said i've got to sort my barnet out she saw me messing you know putting a comb through my hair and thought i was saying bonnet as in <laughs> Easter bonnet it made perfect sense to her but then i said no no it's barnet not bonnet it's just cockney rhyming slang was invented by the english troops to mess with the gi's because the GIs would come over and they would be incredibly smooth and incredibly handsome. And they would have all the, the nylons, the pantyhose. They'd have all the chocolate. They'd have the chewing gum. And the English soldiers had bugger all. <laughs> so to, to get some one up on them, they, they invented this cotton rhyming slang. And I still use them. Well, Teddy understands them because she was there for 10 years. But if I used, I have to be careful who I use them with because people say, what the hell? I still use a lot of uh, Jewish 
phrases, Yiddish phrases. So if someone is wearing a good suit, I'll say it's a nice piece of schmutter. And schmutter, <laughs> schmutter means material, a bit of, you know, it, it's quite nice. I still use the Indian Kazi for toilet, for the bathroom, because Kazi is essentially is a generic phrase now in England for anything that's disgusting and filthy. And <laughs> I wouldn't go to that pub. It's a real Kazi. You shouldn't so, have led with schmutter, because I schmutter. don't know that you're going to be able to top that one. I'm going oh, to all... every day now. Schmutter. Right now, you guys are talking about, you know, uh, Shakespeare, there's a, there's a great book written by Bill Bryson called The Mother Tongue, and it explains a lot of the derivations of words and how some have fallen into disuse and some are still absolutely prevalent. But it also explains why some words, there would be four words for the same thing, and, and wherever the a particular word was used more commonly, the other three would just fall into, you know, <laughs> fall into disrepair because nobody, it wasn't in common parlance, so that only one of the four survived. And he lists why it is certain words are now in our vocabulary and others just have disappeared. Now, that's purely, interesting. Purely because it would either be used in a legal document or a well-known author would use them. And, and as soon as someone who was seen to be bright and erudite would, would use a word, people would, like you guys were saying in that previous episode, once a word is used, people say, oh, I like that. I'll use that. But hence, yeah. hence, hence the Calipigian. Right. It's a great word. It's a fantastic What was the word, word. for head? Do you remember, Caressa? Mazard. Yes, Mazard. Mazard, that's the one. A conk on the Mazard, yeah. So yeah. if you had a really nice hat on your head, could you could you compliment someone by telling them how much you loved the schmutter on their Mazard? No, no, schmutter is very much material. It's, it's cloth. Oh, if you okay. Wanted, if you wanted to say in London, you would say, that's a lovely tip for you have on your Mazard. Tip for is tip for tat hat. Cock the right. Tip for. So you'll still say you'll still here in London, and people will say a lovely whistle and flute. It's a suit, so you could have schmutter or whistle and flute. That's but awesome. It's, it, it's really done to confuse anyone from any other country. Like English isn't confusing enough, as as you've <laughs> already discussed. Well, since we're on the topic of confusing English, there is something I've kind of always wanted to know, and I've talked to several Brits that I'm friends with, and they've all given me a different answer. Why is it that several words? usually place names, mm -hmm. are pronounced in ways that make no sense whatsoever, given how they're spelled, like Lester or Slough. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree with you. I was in, on the borders of Herefordshire and Yorkshire, there is a place that is spelt Leominster, L-E-O-M-I-N-S-T-E-R. It's pronounced Lemster. Yes, of course it is. <laughs> Why? Why on earth? And I think it is, there's some sort of perverse pleasure of the locals who, who don't want people to say Gloucester, so say, oh, it's, no, it's Gloucester. Gloucester. And, it, and there is a kind of a, I don't know, I think there's a, there's a, a perverse pleasure of the, of the locals to, uh, to wind people up. But I really don't know. And I'm wondering whether there is some, I think a lot of people in England tend to go with whatever the colloquialism is for that particular area. So it tends to be that the people that speak in that particular dialect and there are so many weird dialects in England. I suppose it's a little like the States, but, but on a much smaller scale. Right. So you can, if I was to sit in a room with someone from South London, someone from the East End and somebody from West London, I would be able to tell them apart. 
you guys wouldn't, but I would, only because I've been around people. I would sit when I was working at Scotland Yard. I sat on a table of four people. There was me, a guy from Newcastle, a guy from Northern Ireland, and a guy from Wales. And some of the conversations were purely, what? What did you say? What? What? <laughs> no one understanding each other. And, and they, you know, we're all within the British Isles. But anyway. Well, it's like so, that scene in Hot Fuzz when, they, when they're talking <laughs> to the guy with all the weapons in his garage. Yeah. Now, he's a Gloucester. He's a Gloucester. Just a mouthful yeah. of marbles, you know. Yeah. But you know what's funny is I, you know, had a, a, a moment with you. And, and since I've known you, Trevor, we've never really had many problems communicating. Mm-mm. But sometimes it's even the most obvious stuff that you just miss because I know the Englander's fondness for tea. Yeah. But what was it, a year and a half ago maybe now at this point? Uh, you guys had a cat that you needed to find a home for. Yes. I decided to let you bring him over and try him out here to see if he fit well with us. So he's walking around the house and you guys are, he's getting along with everybody. We're having a nice time watching him. And you guys were telling me, you know, cause you'd had him for a little while at this point and you were telling me what he liked and what he disliked. And you were like, Oh, and he loves his evening tea. And I was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> his evening yeah. tea. He loves his evening tea. And I was like, well, now, this you is one of give those, him a cup of tea. This is one of those debates that will, that even raves on in England is that you're supposed to have breakfast, lunch and dinner. But we always call dinner the evening meal tea. And that's how I've heard it used, at least for whatever would be the past 20 years, I guess. Right. In common media, if people are talking about having tea, it's not the, you know, four o'clock tea and crumpets. It's tea. It's tea. It's supper. It's dinner. It's the evening meal. Right, right. Well, there is a common misconception all over the world, as much in England as anywhere else, uh, over the words high tea. And everyone assumes that high tea is the scones and the petit four, you know, and the little sandwiches with the corners cut off. High tea is only called high tea because it's on a high table, not on a coffee table. Oh, really? That's the only reason it's called high tea. It's a, a normal dining room table height. So when people say, if you ever go to a restaurant and they charge you more money for high tea, and it's just the scones and the petit four and the coffee and the your tea, rather, and the and little cucumber sandwiches, tell them that's not high tea. You're only paying more money to because simply have food served at a regular yeah. table. Yeah. Now, the difference between dinner and tea is dinner is normally a cooked meal, whereas tea is sandwiches, cake, cold meats maybe cold drinks, soda, whatever. So tea and dinner are interchangeable, but people tend to, depending on what part of the country they come from, they'll say tea if it was just a table full of, like like you'd get in Ireland. If you went to any Irish ha- uh, house and turned up unannounced, they'd say, oh, sure, we've not got much in. But of course they have. They've got a table groaning with uh, sandwiches and <laughs> cakes and cookies. and That's what tea is. Dinner, which is the, exactly the same time of the in the evening, is is a cooked meal. Huh. So, there you go. And, and the whole thing of taking tea, as in a cup of tea, at three o'clock is not adhered to as much in England as it used to be. But tea is one of those things that is kind of it's a it's a panacea. It's a catch-all for everything. If you're feeling down, a cup of tea will pick you up. If you're feeling stressed, a cup of tea will calm you down. And tea, tea is processed in your body in a completely different way. I won't bore you too much on tea because I really can. But uh, coffee gives you a big spike, whereas tea is like a flat line. Oh, so we have it- the same stuff here in the South, except we call it meth. <laughs> no, meth is an even bigger spike. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, and, and a much quicker one than coffee is. Although um, with the advent of Starbucks, I'm not sure that's true. Well, yeah, totally. I love reading stuff about the Brits 
obsession with tea or whatever. And I read a funny one the other day, someone explaining to us in the colonies how the Brits really do kind of prize their tea for just about everything. And she said, okay, here's an example. My mom and I were having an argument and as a peace offering, she made me a cup of tea. I poured the tea out and made my own cup. And someone else responded, has she gotten over it yet? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, the ultimate insult. Oh, my goodness. Well, I have to say, Chris, I was really happy to hear you reference uh, Stephen Fry and uh, Joe Joe Brand's Fulton Fun Bags. Oh, he's... He's wonderful. Oh, he is just, I mean, he, you know, he, is, he is absolutely a national treasure, uh, and quite rightly so. He is one of those people who has a, a stunning command of the English language. Yes. But he's also not a pedant when it comes to, uh, you know, he's not the grammar Nazi. Right. He said, listen, if you wish to use certain words, you may use them incorrectly, but I'm not going to say to you, oh, you do realize you're not re- using that one properly, don't you? He said, no, he said, whatever you want. I mean, he's a great advocate for uh, swearing. And he said, there is an absolute necessity for swearing. And far from the assumption that swearing shows a lack of vocabulary, it shows a greater vocabulary. Yes. Well, there's something, too, about, I think, the charm of a lot of people like Stephen Fry and Steve Coogan and guys like that who have the intellectualism but don't approach it in a highbrow way. They still will perform what would be considered goofy, silly, lowbrow humor, but they do it with such an over... Like, you know they're smart people, but they appreciate all kinds of humor. Now, you have absolutely, without any pre-planning, you have absolutely walked into a subject I want to talk about. Oh, good. Steve Coogan. Yeah. I'm going to read you a synopsis of a made-for-BBC movie. Oh, boy. It was aired in 2002 with Steve Coogan and several other people in it. And you tell me if this reminds you of anything. Okay. It's a story of a fan cruise that is held in honour of a fictitious 80s sci-fi series called The Children of Castor. And basically, it's 20 years after the show's cancellation. One of the guys is a guest on the cruise, but he doesn't want to be there because he's gone on to fame and fortune, while the other guy in the series hasn't. Huh. If, if that's, if I, the moment I heard you talk about Con Man, I was thinking, yeah. oh, hang on, hang on. That's Yeah, back in 2002. And basically, they go on a cruise, and Rob Brydon's character has done nothing whereas the Steve Coogan's character has gone on to fame and fortune and really considers it be- beneath him to come and be on this cruise. <laughs> it, it's one of those things where he eventually sort of gets into the, the, the swing of the cruise and uh, realises, I suppose if, it, if we have a, a comparison, it would be the thing that had uh, Alan Rickman in, uh, the star... Quest. Thank you. It has that kind of parallel where they eventually realise in the end that being the characters they were really is what the fans want yeah well that that's and that's so based like i definitely see the parallels with that right. con man i think con man's very autobiographical for those guys too and it's like right. it, it all also comes from star trek with yeah. you know shatner cr- going off to this fantastic career and all the other guys kind of wallowing in the you know the misery of only being known yeah. for that one thing that they did well i guess i mean it's called cruise of the gods so i, I i'm guessing somewhere it's it's online whether it's on you know the the legitimate channels on on YouTube or whether Pirate Bay has it. Yeah, but Cruise of the Gods. And the moment you start talking about Con Man, I was like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa! I recognise that. One. <laughs> so well, that that's a good. That. I'm glad we're having this part of the conversation though, getting away from language, because you and I, Trevor, have had this conversation before about sort of the rash of the attempt to Americanize 
English shows. I think yeah. when we were, I can't remember what show it was, but we got in a conversation about coupling because yeah. I think they had just started the American version. Right. I mean, they took it was the, the credits. Oh, it's horrible. Well, see, conversely, we took the Golden Girls and made it into the Brighton Bells. Did you really? And it was hideous. Oh, it was horrible. You know when you watch the the opening series and it's had loads of hype, and you sit. It's like you were saying about the cringing when you see you see someone that you said about the douche cringe. Yeah, you know, and you go, oh, I can't believe this is happening. You know, it was one of those. You watch the we watched the opening episode, and oh, it was painful to watch because you were thinking they'd not quite taken the full script. They'd adapted it very slightly, but it was clearly the American script with the English bits bolted on. Right. Oh. And it was horrible. I mean, it, you know, it, it's, it's the watch TV through your fingers TV. Which, yes. Oh, it was horrible. It's very rare that something that is a one country's television absolutely transfers. When Ricky Gervais was asked to do The Office, he said, it won't work. You have to do your version of it. Right. I'll be a consultant, but you cannot take my scripts because the, there's lots of cultural references. Yes, you could change them, but they're not going to mean the same. And I think that's what people fail to see. And I think that's why I did not at all like the American version of The Office, even though I, I quite thought the British version of The Office was sparkling in its own way. Yeah. Well, and I did like the American version of The Office, but they only really aped the first couple of episodes. I think there was one episode of the American office that was pretty much note for note, one of the English episodes. And then they kind of did do their own thing with it. They had the basic archetypes of the characters, but then they played with it in their own way, which I think is one of the reasons that show was reasonably successful. It went on for too long Mm. as many American shows tend to do. Yeah. I remember in interview, there was some big audience with Stephen Fry in Australia, I think. And he was asked the question, what is the difference between English and American humor? And until he said it, I hadn't really thought about it, but it is quite true. In England, you have people like David Brent, Ricky Gervais. You have Basil Fawlty. You have all these people. The lead guy of the show is a failure. Yes. And is, right. it is shown as a failure. You come to something like Friends and, you know, Chandler's this wisecracking. It, the English love their down-at-heel loser. Everyone wants the the underdog to do well, but you know he's going to fall on his ass and it's all going to go wrong. And you kind of revel in that. The Americans for a long time didn't like that. They don't right. want they don't want their hero to be flawed. But I think the once the office came into being uh, and the, you know the curb your enthusiasm and this the underdog not winning every week became kind of acceptable. In in I think you know it, it's strange that it crossed over. Because American humor for a long time wasn't the, the underdog. It was everyone's going to win and, you know, you can't have any anything go wrong to the guy. Well, there was certainly, it, there's certainly an amount, I think, of embarrassment that happens to American characters. You know, it's a very sitcom-y thing, especially, you know, when you had the the slovenly husband with the impossibly attractive wife who was always doing stupid things. But I think the difference, to me anyway, when I watch a show like England's Office, is that the stuff that is cringeworthy and embarrassing that happens to those characters, you either get that or you don't. There's a much more broad sort of slapsticky goofiness about what happens to American characters, whereas, you know, the whole section where Ricky Gervais dances in the English version of The Office, if you are uncomfortable by real life embarrassment, then you won't find it funny. 
However, because I've I've known people who said they couldn't watch that show or any of his other shows, really extras, anything like that, because there's a humiliation factor that never quite gets resolved that you feel there's something very grounded and very real about it. I think American TV likes to go overboard with it so that there's not really a sense of reality to it. Whereas, you know, you know, after David Bowie passed, you know, people were passing around that clip of him on extras, which was just insanely funny. But if you're the kind of person who doesn't like people getting like really hammeredly embarrassed, right? Then you felt awkward watching it. I think there is certainly English humor was very much the kind of humiliation slapstick humor. Yeah, the whole uh, music hall tradition of people, you know, falling down and and getting hit on the head with planks and stuff. But I think that the biggest difference between humor in England now and America now is that humor in England, the the language barrier that used to be there has gone down so you can use as many swear words as you like on english tv after nine o'clock in the evening whereas here i'm not sure that's um yeah that's acceptable you know if you're not if you're not on cable you can't right right i mean so that's the one of the things i mean i you know i still remember the 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 huge uh, outcry when tynan uh anyway kenneth tynan said fuck on tv in the 60s and it was like the world was going to implode you know like a, he, how dare he use such foul language <laughs> it's commonplace in england now on on tv i mean and, and you know as you said can't it's that's that's all over tv now after nine o'clock what they call the watershed it's it's open season which is the reason benny hill could get away with the the scantily clad women in the 70s right because you had sanford and sons we had steptoe and son you had all in the family we had till death us do part and there was that thing in the 70s where the husband could be the horrible misogynist racist picking on his wife and people chuckled and then you got into the late 70s and early 80s and people said you do know that's not funny and Benny Hill, I used to see him all the time. He he didn't trust banks. He walked around with carry bags full of money in the town next to ours, a place called Teddington, which is where the studios were that he recorded his show. Mm-hmm. Oh, now, if you've ever seen the Monty Python fish slapping dance, of course. right, that's on Teddington Lock, which is right behind the studios. I took my wife there and she said, oh, my God, this is the fish slapping dance. But anyway, Benny Hill was called in sometime in the early 80s and told, your staff's not funny anymore. People don't think that the humiliation of women is funny anymore. And and I think the 70s allowed England to get away with a lot more. Uh, we had a show called Mind Your Language, which was about a guy who did evening classes and taught foreign people how to speak English. And the whole premise of the show was him taking the piss out of the foreigners. <laughs> Can you imagine pitching a show like no, that? No, it would never oh, happen. Just unbelievable. But it got on air, you know, and, and sexism and racism. You know, I grew up with that and even then i knew that was abhorrent and my parents had said we really shouldn't be watching this this is awful you know but it's just humor in england was a lot more a lot more objective it was a lot more slapstick it was a lot more humiliation whereas when we watched american tv it was cheers it was soap do you remember the thing oh yeah Oh, I loved soap. Our Thursday evenings, we had, well, we used to have on a Saturday morning, we'd get all your cartoons. We'd get get the Banana Splits and Arabian Nights and all of those cartoons. That was our mornings, our Saturday mornings. Our Thursday evenings were uh, Alias Smith & Jones, Starsky & Hutch, Soap, all of those. So we, our, most of our evening TV was American TV. Right. So, so we, you know, we grew up saying, well, hang on. 
American TV seems a bit more kind of glossy and, and swish, and ours seems a bit tawdry, you know? Well, I think that there is, and we've, Evan and I have definitely discussed before, and it's certainly not a new topic, but we've discussed the differences, some subtle, some less subtle, <laughs> between British humor and American humor. Certainly quite a lot of crossover. Some funny things are universally funny. Right. But the way that we culturally approach humor is very different, or can be very different. Right. Like, I think Carl Pilkington would not be funny if he were American. Oh, my God. No, no, no. He has to. He has to be this northern guy with an, a, a head like an orange. You, you could kinda... maybe play Carl Pil- a character like Carl Pilkington, but he'd have to be like the biggest redneck on the planet. But the problem with that is, for doing that for an American audience with an American, you were right. He would have to be southern of some sort. Right. But doing it that way, it would all be the worst train wreck reality show where we are one hundred percent laughing at you, <laughs> and you have no idea that you're funny. Like Carl Pilkington is at least self-aware enough to understand that, yes, we are going to be laughing at him. And he knows that. That's fine with him. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. He really doesn't. That's very much a part of why he's doing what he's doing. But isn't it strange that we, if you were to write a character like Carl Pilkington, any good studio would say, but that's not a real person. Right. No right. one would be like that. Well, to a certain extent. But, you know, there's always that thing, especially in American sitcoms, that style of comedy, where you have those obnoxious, unbelievable characters. I think Carl, a character like Carl Pilkington would fit in just fine on one of those shows. But everyone would watch that and go, there's not really anybody like that. <laughs> I mean, for the longest time when I started listening to Ricky Gervais's podcast, I questioned whether the fact he was a real person or not. I mean, at some point I was like, this is just too perfect. This has to be a scam or a setup of some kind. Right. Now, I mean, if Ali, if, if uh, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen created a character that was like Pilkington, you'd say, oh, what a ridiculous caricature right. of a, you know, it's just the way it is. Right. And he's amazing. He, uh, he absolutely is. And f- with seemingly no effort. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see, I often wonder whether there is an element of, uh, of innocence about it, because I don't know that he would be able to keep up the pretense of being that dim. Absolutely. I think that is absolutely true. I think that the Carl Pilkington we see, given proper edits for making it to television or whatever, is it's just him. That's absolutely him. And for Brits, I think that's brilliant for people who appreciate British humor. Right. I think that reaches into them because it is self-deprecating in a way that British humor often is without being backhandedly self-deprecating. Right, right. That's yeah. a really good There point. is a measure of laughing at you, but it is also laughing with you. Yeah. We are on this self-deprecating journey together. Americans don't do that, really. Mm. No, that's a really yeah. good point. I also think there's an element of Carl Pilkington where that childlike thing that I think, as you said earlier, is, is very much a part of his appeal. Yes. But there's a dangerous line with him because especially in a, in a world where people get offended so easily if they think you're mocking someone with disabilities per se, he's very close to being a special needs person. Well, the but thing is, if I he crossed that, if he wasn't able to be self-sufficient, he's a producer for a radio station, which makes me chuckle every time I think about it, because I think it says so much about the state of radio, period. But he's, you know, he's not. So it's OK to laugh at him. I think there is a, a parallel, um, albeit um, possibly a thin line, between Carl Pilkington and the, 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 the bearded lady in a sideshow. Right. I think there is an element of 
you know, throwing, throwing fruit and vegetable at the guy in the stocks. There is a voyeuristic thing about yes. Carl Pilkington that makes you think, I shouldn't be watching this, and I feel bad for watching this, but it is such compelling viewing Right, I want to stay with it. Well, and to me, too, like the appeal, because I, I haven't really watched many of the shows based around Carl Pilkington. All my knowledge, like 80% of my knowledge of Carl Pilkington comes from the podcast. And Ricky Gervais comes from a background of if you like someone, you mock them mercilessly. Yes. So when he really rips into Carl on the podcast, and by the way, Carl's diary is one of the funniest things. Like if you're listening to this, you don't know what I'm talking about. Go to YouTube, look up Ricky Gervais, Carl's diary. It's one of the funniest things you'll ever hear in your life, period. Because it is the diary of a madman. But Ricky makes fun of him. But you also see Ricky like genuinely calling him up to see how he's doing and going to dinner with him. And they're buddies. So there is a meanness about it. But it's almost a meanness with an affection wrapped around it. Well, you bring up a, a valuable point, And this is something my wife noticed. And that is that people, uh, guys certainly in England, greet each other with just a a string of insults uh, here you'd say hey buddy how you doing you know in in england it would be you're right dickhead you yeah know, and, and and there is that there is a there is a certain macho uh, element to it that you don't want to show any affection it's the age-old thing of the of the husbands going off to the pub and the wives having a an evening you know glass of wine and watching tv and when the two couples come back together the, the, the husband says to the wife what did you do oh you know i spoke to jane and she told me all about the problems they were having and their mortgage and you know and she's going to have the garden done and they're going to paint the bedroom blue and she's talking about this and the kids are going into school and they're doing really well and mrs smith down the road's just got a new dog and and he says oh and she said how was ray he said um oh, i don't know we just drank a beer and talked you know right and there is that thing of english guys don't sort of show affection for each other or don't want to show affection. I mean, there clearly is huge affection for Carl from Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. But there's a, also that English element of, well, we can't say how much we love him because that would be wrong. Right. I mean, sometimes it is like the more you make fun of someone with certain people, that is your way of telling them that you love them. Well, it's, it's, the, it's like the thing they always say about the little kid pulling the girl's hair because he, he loves her in school. Right. You know, I, I know that's a simplistic view, but it is that kind of, you know, when you're taunting someone and you want to have interactions with them, the chances are you want to spend more time with them. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's a comedian. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Reginald D. Hunter. Oh, no. I love Reginald. Reginald is brilliant. Reg, he is brilliant. He's an American black guy, and he works primarily, if not entirely, in the UK. Yeah. And he's he is completely brilliant because he's very modern american black guy sure. just like you would expect a modern american black guy to be but he his humor is very across the pond in its approach so he's able to take right. his experiences being you know a black american and relate that to a comedic audience that will appreciate it in the way that only brits really can right he's he is absolutely amazing and he has this really great part about um when he's out with his friends, his American friends, and a drunk Irish dude walks past them and says, I'm not going to attempt the accent to avoid insulting anyone, and says, geez, you're, <laughs> you're a big mean-looking cunt. Yeah. And his friends start to get angry, and he's like, it's okay, I speak Irish. What he's trying to say is, you look like an interesting person. Maybe we can be friends. <laughs> yeah. And so he responds with, how you doing, you drunk, patty bastard? And the Irishman's like, yeah. Yeah, you're all right. 
that's a really good example. I mean, those are just strangers on the street. Yeah. Well, and there does seem to be a history of, and obviously, Trevor, you correct me if I'm wrong, but Englanders appreciating real biting humor. You know, that's what Bill Hicks was huge right. in England. He was bigger in England than he was in America. And it's not that Americans don't like, you know, sardonic wit or anything, but I think it's more appreciated over there. Yeah, I think Reg, Reg D. Hunter has this has such a unique viewpoint because he comes to England as a black southern man. He brings that sensibility with him, which allows him to mock and very much pinpoint the English idiosyncrasies and highlight them for English people to laugh at. I think he is very important. His humour is very important I agree. because he brings an outsider's view but people that they have a a view of him because he's a black southern man and he speaks kind of slowly but his humor is so pin sharp yes that it belies the 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 kind of slightly slow kind of very methodic person that he pretends to be he is so good at put downs i think because it comes from this slow talking very relaxed very cool southern black man it has more bite it has a lot more kind of punch to it cuz you'd expect that sort of thing from a charlie brooker Right. I mean, yes, Charlie yes. Brooker would not make it in the U.S. if he was not British. No. At no, all. Like, no. we would not take him. No. Well, I think that's, to a certain extent, the, the, the whole Ricky Gervais doing the Golden Globes, there is a sense of outrage there. And a lot of people say, well, we don't like him. He's rude and he's not funny. And I think that is kind of the, the sense that American people say, well, that guy's just offensive. And I think that, that you're right about Charlie Brooker. He just would not make it here because right. people would say, well, he's not very nice. you know." And he's not. Well, I, I also think, though, no, that, no, you know, no. I think a lot of people did like Gervais at the Golden Globes. The people that were sort of outraged were a lot of the people he was making fun of. And I think a lot of people like to see comedians or somebody from a working class background take shots at elites because, you know, he was asked back two times to host the Golden Globes and the ratings increased each time. I think most people that watched it really enjoyed him. I think people do. I mean, I, I, this is a, a crass generalization and I apologize, but I think a great number of people do like to see someone prick the bubble of pomposity. Absolutely. Yes. You know, they like to see someone being taken down a few pegs. To a certain extent, it does come back to what I was saying earlier on about actors in England. Are, it's, a, it's an occupation like a carpenter or a plumber, whereas here they're on a pedestal. Right. right. I remember walking along the street years ago, coming out of a practice with a band in southwest London. And walking towards me were Tom Courtney and Albert Finney, just having a chat. Wow. And I, I said to the drummer that was in the band, that's Tom Courtney and Albert Finney. And he said, who are they? He had no idea. Now, did I stop them last their autograph? No. No. Right. You know, any more than I did on the, the few times I've met the guys from Queen in the street. You just don't because it's kind of not done. If they were a professional engagement, you would. You know, if they were a gig or, you know, they were presenting a, an award in a school, you'd ask their autograph. But on the street, you don't. Right. Whereas here, actors and anyone of a sort of creative bent are seen as slightly higher <laughs> being. So I think that what he did was say, you're no different to me. Right. You know. Well, I think there, there are two points that that all brought up for me. One is that, to us at least, and I'm not sure how much this opinion is held generally in the UK, but at least on this side of the pond, nobody cuts down better than a, than a Brit. Right. <laughs> it just doesn't get delivered in the same way. There's something much more biting about an English or any sort of great British 
accent delivering those biting remarks. Nobody does that better to us. And as it regards actors and how we kind of treat them and our celebrities in general, this is a theory I've had for a very long time. We treat our actors the way that we treat our actors and our musicians, our celebrities of all sorts. Because we don't have royalty. Right. (laughs) Yeah. The UK has royals. They don't need another set of royals. Right. But we don't have anyone that is just an almighty figurehead. So those who are in the public eye become that for us. Right. And I don't know what that says about us as humans or as Americans or just the difference between our cultures, because largely we are Western European in our culture. I think it pretty much proves Loki's point in the first Avengers. I agree. <laughs> to be ruled. I agree. <laughs> well, it's, it's strange because the the American uh, idea of reality shows is uh, they're very big in England. You know, to my dying day, I will not understand why something like Keeping Up with the Kardashians even exists. No. Right. Let alone is. No, pop- I'm, I'm right there with you. But it's popular in England, and you 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 scratch your head and you say, "But why?" I mean, I I've never been a big fan of reality shows. We had. Uh, I don't know whether they had something similar here. We had a thing where all these six or ten celebrities would be locked in a house and have to... Yeah, we had that here. Right. And you're thinking, well, am I really sitting on my couch watching TV, watching people sitting on a couch watching TV? (laughs) Yeah, yes, you are. Is this this what it's come to? But I think reality TV is cheap TV. We then get back to the the, the bearded lady sideshow thing. Yeah, I mean, we do, I think, as part of the human condition, we want to feel that we're better than other people, so we want to see those people act horribly to to prove to ourselves that we're just better people. That's the only thing I can think. Is it a lowest common denominator thing where, you know, we want to we want to see people we want to see people on Jerry Springer. We want to see people on oh, yeah. these, these these shows. We want to see people who we consider to be either in a lower class than us or or not as good as us. And does that are we making ourselves feel better by throwing vegetables at the man in the stocks? I think it, it, psychologically it's very difficult for people to accept and admit their own flaws. Right. Uh, we all have them. We all know we have them. Most modest people are like, yes, these are my problems and my issues. But there's comes a certain self-awareness with admitting your flaws and knowing what your flaws are that does bring you down a bit. And it's always nice to know that there's someone because everybody also carries guilt in their hearts about something. Right. right. And right. I think there's always that relief that, you know, there is someone who is a worse human being than you. But going back to what Carissa was saying, the whole thing about a Brit being able to deliver a sharp, pithy speech, it does come down to we are seen as a, as a nation of being slightly, well, no, quite a bit, straight-laced and to the point. And I think that's why, you know, when, when Drew Carey had his show, he had, he had Craig Ferguson as the English, you know, as the English boss. Who, who <laughs> sort of, you know, and the same way there was a show on Benson, one of them had, a, had a, an English butler. Mr. Belvedere. He, yes. Right. And he just was the most sort of snooty. Mm-hmm. But it's because we play up to those stereotypes that we're kind of seen around the world as sort of the snooty upper class being able to deliver those lines with such sort of disdain. Right. Um, I mean, it's the, the accent helps, but... Sure. Well, and going back to comedy, too, with Ricky Gervais, we were talking about how, you know, certain people were offended by some of the things he says. And what I find 
And you tell me, Trevor, if this is a bigger deal in England than it is here. What I find gets Ricky Gervais more haters than anything else is his outspoken atheism, where I bet you money it's not as big a deal in England as it is here. Well, no, England is primarily a godless country. Yes. In as much as they don't feel the need. This is a horrible thing to say, but it's it's true. It's a horrible cliche, but a lot of people in England are spiritual. In a, in a, I'm thinking more Buddhist spiritual. I'm sure. thinking more you know, uh, uh, friends of the earth. I don't want to say a tree hugger, but you know, people are more friendly to nature and a lot more kind of spiritual in themselves. Um, they don't feel that they need the Ten Commandments to be good. They don't feel that religion has a hold on on being good to other people. We all have a moral compass in England, and that really doesn't come from religion. As uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens said, if you need religion to tell you not to murder somebody, then you really are in a, you know, in a right. bad way. Right. I think that one thing that I've noticed, at least, is that even those people in Britain who are religious, because clearly there are oh, absolutely. religious people in England, they go about their religion in a much less fundamentalist evangelical way than the right. Americans right. do tend to. They're just like, yeah, I'm I'm an Anglican or yeah, I'm a Catholic or right. whatever. Right. I just am. Right. And I go to yeah. church and then we do this thing and I meet with my <laughs> parish and then I go about my life. But do you think right. that has anything to do with just the sheer age of England compared to America and how they've been through the growing pains of all the religious wars and, and everything that, that comes from it and they've sort of evolved whereas since America basically started as a Puritan haven, we still have to evolve more and will eventually get to the point where England is now, as far as... Well, see, uh, if I'm being brutally honest, I do not see a time in your lifetime or my lifetime when America will separate its religion from the rest of the country. Agreed. The rest of its, its legislation. Right. I think it is so tied in. There are enough people who believe in the, the invisible space daddy to, right. to, make, to make this untenable. In England, it was never a huge tenet of family life. It just wasn't. And, and as Carissa said, when people when people have a religion, they, they quietly go on with their religion. You know, little village churches are closing down. There's a massive cathedral in central London has been turned into a nightclub. When you go in it, the DJ's up in the pulpit. <laughs> nice. There is there is a godlessness, and and I think what they feel is it's you know I don't need you know I don't need to have this 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 spiritual um, sort of Damocles to to make me do good things for other people. Now, don't get me wrong, London and well, England certainly is just as crime ridden as any other country, but it's not that people are, are godless; hence, they're lawless. They just don't see Christianity or, or whatever religion you have. It's not a huge part of who you are. You don't identify yourself as a Christian. You right. identify yourself as, you know, uh, I'm an accountant. I'm a whatever. And if someone asks you, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got a religion. You know, I'm a, as, you, as Chris said, you know, I'm an Anglican or I'm a, I'm a Jehovah's Witness or whatever. But it's not who you are here. If America could become the country where the question of a president is never do you believe in god right which it always is and anyone who says no or doesn't declare specifically they do have a, a faith is not trusted which is a nonsense as far as i'm concerned well there are still states that will not allow you by the rules to run for public office if you are not right a believer in probably a christian god but certainly a god of some kind like you can't right. even run no no well is that the, just recently that case of the uh 
civic official who refused to marry a couple, a heterosexual couple, because they went to his uh, registry office. And he went through all the deals with them, went through the papers. Yeah, we'll do this. This is how much it's going to cost you. And then refused to wed them because neither of them were religious. And he said, you cannot marry if you don't have a belief in, in God. So ridiculous. Uh, it, it's nonsense. In England, that guy would be laughed out of town and people would say, what a cretin. Here, there are enough people who would support him. When they, the couple took it to the judge, next level up, the judge said, if he doesn't want to do it, he doesn't have to do it. He's not right. duty bound to do it. And they were saying, he's a civic official yeah. doing a civic duty. This has nothing to do with right. his religious. Right. If he's a minister saying, you cannot get married in my church, absolutely. If you want to be that bigoted, do that. But don't say, as a civic official, you cannot get married in my registry office because you don't right. believe in God. And I think what, what we have lost, what well, certainly what America has lost, I say we now because I consider myself to be an honorary <laughs> American. What we have lost is the, is the idea that a marriage is a civil ceremony. It just happens to have, over the years, been, been blessed in a church. People can still be married in a civil ceremony. Marriage is not a religious thing. People just had it blessed in a church. Right. I think a lot of religions, so I'm, I'm talking Christianity because that seems to be the, the main philosophy here, is that you cannot get married if you don't have a faith. And, and it's like, well, why has no one stood up and said, oh, whoa, 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 that's a civil, getting married is a civil ceremony. It's nothing to do with religious institutions. What do you do, you know? Hey, either you guys got a fart joke handy or anything? <laughs> uh, let me think a fart joke, fart joke. You know, no, that this has been really fascinating, actually. I was just making a joke myself about how I'm not used to highbrow conversation. No, that, that's fine. That's fine. I realized I suddenly it became more of a rant than a podcast. And I oh, not at all. Stop it. I was just fucking with you. Well, <laughs> I do feel like we are getting more progressive socially. I just think it's a slow change. And Trevor, you're probably right. It probably won't. Not probably. It almost definitely will not happen in our lifetimes. But I think it will happen eventually. Give us yeah, a I'd... couple more thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just think there is a it's the age old thing of when you go down so far down a road it's almost impossible to turn back and, and I'm, I'm not going to make a big thing of this but it's you know the right to bear arms once you go down a certain road you cannot turn back the legalization of cannabis you know then they're, they're saying oh actually we're gonna, we might uh, we might uh, make it illegal again you cannot do that yeah good luck right yeah I, I think this is another thing that is perhaps a surprise to me is that people genuinely genuinely think there is some way they're going to have their guns taken away. Right. You know, oh, he's coming for our guns. No one's coming for your guns, you imbecile. But it, but it is that thing, isn't it? It's that, uh, it, it's the keeping people afraid, and then you can make them do whatever you want. And it's because we have so much of our, I don't know, we give so much authority to our media, and our media's sole job is to sell ad space. Right, right. And the only way you sell ad space is to make people afraid to turn the channel. Yeah, I think you guys are absolutely right. I think it's a crime. And uh, if you would like to sponsor the Lucky 10,000, uh, we'll make sure to scare the shit out of all of our listeners <laughs> on the next episode. <laughs> Go ahead and do that. And, well, I think we could probably bring the conversation to a close because it's been just over an hour. Well, I can, I can say, I have to say, for all of my misgivings about America, I live here. <laughs> Absolutely. That tells you how much I love the state. I mean, I, I will sit and gripe in England when I lived in England uh, about things. That is the English way. 
you know the power of complaint is the power of freedom yeah yeah I've, I've said this before on one of the bearded podcasts but i'll say it again the biggest difference i found being in the police and this is a great joke from robin williams is he said in america they say stop or i'll shoot in england they say stop or i'll shout stop again <laughs> that's the biggest difference between the two cultures you know i think england is becoming more americanized uh, i think that is not a bad thing england was always very parochial when we got fast food suddenly england went oh this is good we don't have to put up with some of the garbage we were given before you know that that sort of uh, uh, post-war austerity that england was you know under the under the cosh of rationing and stuff like that so that's why America is seen all over the world as a superpower, because it is that American dream. It is that possibility. It is that you can come here and do, you know, if you have the, the courage and the fortitude, you can get to where you want to be. There's very few other countries you could say that about. That is true. That is true. Sometimes I wish we didn't love to tell the rest of the world that, because sometimes I just want to be like, okay, shut up, America. We know you're proud, but... So, Trevor, if you don't mind me asking... No, go ahead. Are you still a citizen? Are you dual citizen? Have you... Uh, no, I did look into a dual citizenship, but it's so expensive and actually gives you very little. Okay. My brother, my brother lives in Canada, and he's found the same, that even though it is a kind of, uh, you know, Canada's more linked to England than, than the States is, right. that the dual citizenship is very expensive and gives you no no benefits. And to the greater extent, there is the supposition that at some point you will abandon dual citizenship and become an American citizen. Right. That's not something I'm afraid of. It's just something I can't afford. <laughs> you know? So do you, can you vote in UK elections? In UK, no, because I don't live there. Okay. And I can't vote here either because I'm not considered to be a citizen. Right. Oh, you um, can't afford things. You really are an American. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you for that. Yes, I, I realized that. But is it that, that now the big difference for us, of course, in England is your taxes are taken out of your wages. So you don't have to file a tax return. Your business does it for you. Right. Ooh. So what happens is the business tends to submit your taxes down to the penny. So you don't get a refund, but then you don't get a letter from the, the tax people saying, uh, you owe us 10 grand. Right. Yeah. And you don't loan the government your money at no interest for the year. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, there are differences. I mean, there are cultural differences. Yeah. England is really stuffy. But over here you have drive through pharmacies. It swings and roundabouts, you know. You know what I've realized from this conversation, Trevor, and just knowing you for years, and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be the first person to say this, so I just want to make sure that it gets clear, all you listeners out there, this could literally change the world of what I'm about to say, that despite our differences, we're really just all the same deep down. Uh. Absolutely. <laughs> I, know, I know you cheeky bugger. <laughs> Yes, yes, thank, thank you for your philosophy there. The thing is, it, it's, uh, I, I hate to do this, but I'm going to quote uh, Peter Ustinov. He said, people are born good, they're just made bad. I can believe that for the most part. And again, it's an American, I have to quote another American comedian, Dennis Leary, <laughs> saying about his child being born. And he said, I looked into my child's eyes and thought, this is an empty vessel. I can fill it with love. I can fill it with hate. I can fill it with, you know, misogyny. I can fill it with whatever I want. It's my duty to send this Paul, this small person out in the world with a level view and a fair view and and not carry my prejudices. And I think that's a that's a valuable thing yeah. for us to all realize that 
we do we all have to coexist i know that sounds really corny and trite but it, we do we all have to coexist I, I think if if less presidents believed in god they'd be less likely to send their troops to go and meet him. Yeah. Amen to that. That's a powerful statement. And on that note, Trev, we Thanks. just want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been an awesome, fascinating conversation. And um, seriously, you can come back every week and we can just talk about British humor and yeah. how much cooler <laughs> it is across the pond and the weather and the fact that the Isle of Wight is for half the year, not the smallest county and for half the year, the smallest county. <laughs> right, right, right. I will tell you that even though we uh, we were on the, on the little Isle of Wight there, when we were on the mainland, I went to a tiny pub in Yorkshire and the and the news, the headline news on the local paper that Sunday was a man that had a pen stolen. Oh. So, <laughs> crime isn't rampant in England. But thank you for letting me come on here. Thank you for letting me take up a valuable amount of your time. No, and, of course uh, not. Hopefully you'll edit out all of the, the ums and ers and garbage. Always. As a loyal listener, I will keep on listening. I enjoy your stuff. I enjoy the bearded ones. And and I think, you know, the three podcasts, we all support each other. Yes, and absolutely. Then, and then everyone else supports us. We're, we're, we're winning. Absolutely. We are winning. I was so happy that you guys started a podcast and I listened to it faithfully every Indeed. time you put out an episode. Well, Carissa, it was great to talk to you eventually. It's it's nice that uh, there's there's a wise voice to uh, to temper down Evan occasionally. I know. That's <laughs> it's the least I can do. I consider it my duty, honestly. Is that yeah, what keep... it is? Kind of. Is that what the appeal of the show is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the Carissa being erudite and and you you being the luddite. That's what it is. Oh, that's no, I'm not being, true. I'm, I'm ah. being you, you <laughs> what a way to end there you go <laughs> thank well, you guys uh, thank you hey what what is your your twitter for teddy and the baseman there trevor uh it's teddy n n the baseman or on uh, twitter you can get hold of us of us teddy and the baseman on uh, hotmail.com or, or just come on and leave a, a comment on the podcast and we'll we'll get back to you but yeah, I mean, if you, if any of your listeners want to suggest uh, any any subjects for us to talk about, as you know, we we don't shy away from no nothing, from, and that's what I love about sub- your show. Indeed, and I, I we think... suggested even on the bearded ones when we did you guys this fangirl entry, which was wonderful, by the way. <laughs> I think it'd be awesome if people started like sending you guys relationship questions because you're a pretty successful relationship in this day and age. That's kind of rare, and well, since you are of the shows on the network, the only married couple on the network. <laughs> Then, well, we, you know, we met on the internet, and 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 how many horror stories have you heard about people meeting on the internet? And we, oh yeah, we happen to be one of the few uh, the few successes. But I I think in in all fairness, we ought to have you guys as a guest on our podcast, and we'll do a a big four way. Oh, that didn't sound very good, did it? Uh, you know, sure, I mean? oh, yes, sounds it did, great, Trevor. sounds fine. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll we'll invite you guys on, and we'll have a a big old Skype. Um, conversation and and you can weigh in on the naughty subjects we talk about excellent on that note uh we want to thank you guys for listening if you want to leave us a five-star review on stitcher or itunes we will read whatever you say carissa how could people get in touch with us in other ways well they can contact us on twitter as well at lucky underscore 10k or hit us up at gmail lucky 10,000 all spelled out lucky 10,000 at gmail.com excellent and we hope you have enjoyed the show we hope you have enjoyed trevor if you have never listened to teddy and the Baseman, you should and until next time i hope you got lucky tonight good night nerds thank you for being a part of the lucky 10,000 with your hosts evan and carissa email us at lucky10000 at gmail.com find lucky10000 on twitter at lucky underscore 10k and 
visit our podcast network site at beardofpodsnetwork.com.